the chapter we're going to study this week is Daniel 8, the he-goat, a symbol of the Antichrist. And you know what? When you look out at the world today and you see all that is going on, I mean, this is a perfect subject to be talking about today as we get closer and closer to the rise of the Antichrist himself. But um, in Daniel 7... Last week we saw four beasts come up out of the sea that represented various Gentile world kingdoms. The lion, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and some unnamed beast, okay? And that beast was, you know, described as very powerful. It had great iron teeth and it just broke everything down, broke everything into pieces. But in this chapter, we're going to see a ram and a he-goat uh, have a little battle and struggle for dominion. And yes, those both both of these animals that we're going to see in this vision, they too represent Gentile world powers or the kingdoms of some kingdoms of this world. And um, and again, the he goat that we're going to be talking about is likely a type or a symbol of the Antichrist himself. So let's just get into it. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, he was the king of Babylon, last king of Babylon, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first, okay? The first vision he had, I just talked about it, was in chapter 7 with the lion, bear, the leopard, and the non-described beast. Um, but he has another vision. Daniel does. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. Okay, it's, it's significant that he was by this river of Uli because Daniel was, uh, at this time, living in the Babylonian, the, living under Bab the Babylonian Empire. Okay, but now he's taken over to a place in Persia that would ultimately become the place where the, the, the headquarters or the palace of the king of Persia, uh, where that would eventually be. So he's basically taken, he's living in Babylon, he's taken to see a vision in Persia. Okay, And keep in mind, what's, in, what's fascinating about this is that Babylon was securely in power at this time. I mean, there really, I don't think there was even any worry about Persia. So this was way before... Persia even became a threat to Babylon, and Daniel's seeing it beforehand. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and I saw by this river, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Okay, It's commonly known that the ram is a symbol of the Medo-Persia Empire. I mean, they, you can uh, archaeologists have dug up coins with the ram head on it, the coins in Persia with the ram head on it. Uh, the Persian ruler used to go out to battle, uh, leading his armies wearing a ram's head or you know wearing ram's horns. Okay, um, and uh, you know, but it has these two horns. One horn is bigger than the other. So I mean, what, what what's the significance of that? Well. 
it was a it was a joint kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. They were joined together. So obviously, one horn represented the the Medes, and the other horn represented the Persians. Now, the Persians were historically they were greater than the Medes were. Okay, so the greater horn would represent the Persians, while the smaller horn would represent the Medes. Okay, fascinating how God knew this way before it happened. Verse four. And I saw a ram, I saw the ram that we just described with the different horns, pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beasts, remember we talked about that, we did a whole in-depth study talking about the beasts of the field last week. Um, and then how Satan, the serpent, uh, was more, in Genesis chapter 3, he was described as being more, uh, as being wiser than any beasts of the field. And it's fascinating because uh, um, Satan is the one in control of these beasts, these Gentile world kingdoms. And they might, may, there may have existed some even during the time of the Garden of Eden. Um, anyway, so I saw a ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beasts, no other kingdoms, no other governments might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and he became great. Okay, The Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire did exactly that. They, they came from the east. Now, if you look at the directions... Uh, if you get out a Bible map, you can see this. The Persians would be on the east, and so they moved westward. They conquered everything west, and they went north-south, so basically everything westward. This is the great eastern power of that day. Um, okay. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground and the great uh, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Okay, so now here's, here's the picture of it. You can see it behind my verse. It's a little bit dark. But there's this he-goat. He's like flying through the air in fury coming after this, horn, this ram. So that's Persia. And this is something else. We're going to find out it was the kingdom of Greece, Grecia. Okay, under Alexander the Great, and we'll be talking about that in a minute. But so it's describing that coming from the West. Now, if you look Greece and all, if you had a Bible map and you looked at Greece, so you look at the Middle East. It's basically a fight for world dominance in the Middle East. Okay, so the the Eastern power versus the Western power. Now the Western power is attacking the Eastern power. Greece versus Persia. And I saw, and I was considering, um, did I read this whole verse? I'll read it again. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Okay, this notable horn was Alexander the Great. I mean, he conquered. The reason why it's talking about the goat not even touching the ground, I can't remember how long it took him to, but Alexander the Great was like one of the greatest military generals of all times and just very swiftly conquered the entire world. I mean, all the, uh, the military tactics that, the, that, the Greek, that Greece used, that the Greeks used, were very, um, you know, they were known for their speed and their swiftness. I mean, they, they did everything very quickly. And that's why this goat is flying through the air, this he-goat. Um, 
All right. And, and, and it is known by historians that some of the greatest, fiercest battles of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians. Verse 6, and he, and he came to the ram, came to Persia, that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. So he did this in anger and fury and wrath, okay? Now remember, we're going to be talking about that. The he-goat actually represents in type um, the Antichrist himself. Um, and, you know, you look at what's going on today in our world. And you look at the, the, the quickness of how things are changing, you know, and the attack upon Christianity. It's almost as if this he-goat is, uh, is, you know, on the, uh, on the attack. Verse 7, And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler, you know, with bitter anger against him. And he smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So basically, I mean, he just, the Greece just uh, under the symbol of the he-goat, just totally, um, utterly and completely defeated Persia. And here's a p good, p good description of it. I mean, look at it. Look at that big horn of the he-goat. I mean, he's just coming down, no mercy, just pounding on him and trampling him to death. Okay? Um, verse 8, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So now when this he-goat, that's Alexander the Great, the horn, all of a sudden that big horn that was on the he-goat, it breaks, and then four other horns come up and take his place. Well, historically, um, you know, uh, Alexander the Great, when he, I, th I think he died, I think they said he dried, he died uh, by a fever. Uh, it was, I think they even said he was a homosexual um, and he had a drinking problem too. So, I mean, obviously he was a very ferocious, uh, skilled military genius, but he obviously had some morality problems. But, um, so he dies and his four generals that, uh, four of his major generals divided Greece up into four, uh, four regions, and each one of those generals controlled each region. So they sp basically be like the United States breaking up into four pieces and having four presidents run by military generals. Um, all right. So and um, you know it's interesting. You know you look at the Bible, the New Testament. You know uh, it was written in Greek. So the Greeks had a um, you know this Alexander the Great. Not only did he spread his uh, kingdom or his dominion throughout the Middle East, he actually uh, spread uh, the Greek culture throughout the Middle East. He was very successful at that, to the point that, uh, again, even our Bible is written in Greek. So very significant. This is, a very, this is describing a very his, uh, significant historical event before it even happened. Um, let me see. Uh, if you want to look, some of the names uh, of those four military generals, Cassander, 
what he was the one that he one of those four military generals he ruled over Greece and uh, a part of Greece there uh, there's another guy named Lysimachus he ruled over Asia Minor uh, Seleucus you might have heard that Seleucus or Seleucus he ruled over Syria and Israel's land and then there was Ptolemy who ruled over Egypt that that was uh, those were the four generals that uh, took over after the great horn was defeated. Okay, just, let's just talk about the horn for just a second here. You know, the goat's horns, what are they used for? Why does God use horns um, to symbolize kings and, and stuff like that? Well, it, it comments, the reason why, I mean, it's, it's quite self-explanatory, really. Uh, the, the horns, goat's horns in nature are used for defense, dominance, and to protect or gain territory. So what we see here is there's always this, on earth today, there's always these, this, you know, today, America versus China and these countries, you know, there's all these countries are always trying to gain the upper hand, get dominance, you know. So it's, it's kind of the same theme that really uh, continues on throughout history. One beast versus another beast. Verse 9, and out of, now check this out, this is where it gets interesting. And out of one of them... Out of one of those four horns came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Now, the pleasant land obviously is a description of the land of Israel. Okay, so this this little horn comes up and he starts out small. But then this little horn all of a sudden becomes great. And I think much greater um, if, if you're looking at this prophetically as a symbol of the Antichrist, the little horn as being a name of the Antichrist, much greater than, than uh, even the initial great horn that was on the he-goat. Um, now, I will say this. Historically, there was a guy that fulfilled this role as the little horn. Uh, his name was, you can read about him in the Apocrypha. There are these books called First and Second Maccabees that describe uh, a lot of these wars that were going on and describe the little horn. His name was uh, Antiochus the uh, Fourth or Antiochus Epiphanes, and he ruled over Syria and Israel's land under the Seleucid dynasty. Okay, he was he was uh, this guy murdered. Uh, Many other of his own rulers even. This guy was very, I mean, he was a tyrant. He persecuted the Israelites. Um, he uh, uh, set up idolatrous images in the temple. I believe they even said that he sacrificed a pig on the altar in God's temple. So this, if you want to know a little bit about the, what the Antichrist is like and what he's going to do, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, I think set a set a great type of what the Antichrist will do. Just a total wicked guy. Just want just defiled everything, um, and uh, was very ruthless. Okay, so he, so uh, let's see. He goes okay. Verse ten, and it waxed great that little horn. Even now, check this out. Even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. And stamped upon them. So this little horn, again, it, it starts out small, it becomes great, and now it's actually even waxing so great that it reaches unto, the, it's describing as this horn actually going all the way up into heaven and casting down these stars, casting down the stars to the ground. Okay? And not only 
casting down the stars to the ground, but stamping on them. Now this, this really uh, reminds me of a prophecy concerning the dragon in the great book of Revelation. Remember the dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven with his tail and cast them to the ground? I think so. I think there's a connection here. And that's why I believe that this prophecy doesn't just fit Antiochus himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, I believe that, it, that he was merely a type of the future Antichrist. And I, it, it seems obvious to me that that's why God, um, you know, saw fit to put this chapter into the Bible so we could have a little glimpse of what's to come concerning the Antichrist. So historically, um, you know, I don't know exactly what it means by uh, he, Antiochus, how he cast down the hosts of heaven, but if it's symbolic of God's people, it means he, he just, he was ruthless, he, um, um, he treated them poorly, he oppressed them, and cast them to the ground. Now, when you look at what's going on in America, we're kind of experiencing that today. Uh, it's interesting, the American flag has 50 stars on it, which I believe represents the children of Abraham, the, the hosts of God, you know, the children of God. And the little horn today, I mean, now those stars metaphorically, you could say, are being torn from the flag and cast to the ground and stomped on. Um, that represent the children of God or God's people. Um, okay. Uh, some specific places. First Maccabees chapter 1, verse 29 through 32, and 52 through 61, describe how Antiochus persecuted the Israelites. So, um, you know, many people thought, well, what... You know, what, what about the Apocrypha? Is it significant? Should we read it? Well, it, it, to order, in order to really understand uh, some of the book of Daniel, uh, reading the book of First and Second Maccabees certainly helps out a lot, historically speaking anyways. Um, and and, and it, it says uh, by historical estimates, I was looking this up, I can't remember where I got this number from, but it says... Um, that he was responsible for the murder of more than 100,000 Israelites or children of Judah. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot back then. 100,000. One guy. Verse 11, Daniel chapter 8. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So Antiochus, he did do this. He stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple. Like I said, he actually sacrificed a pig on the altar. Uh, probably the mo one of the most blasphemous things you could have done at that time. But Looking future-wise, looking at the Antichrist, um, the Antichrist would exalt himself to the prince of the host, which would either be Michael the archangel or Jesus Christ himself. That he met, that, you know, uh, and it is interesting that um, in Revelation 12, it does describe a battle taking place between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels. Okay, and Michael is described as the prince of the hosts uh, there, the commander of the hosts of God's armies. He's even called, uh, in another place in the book of Daniel, uh, he's, I think it's Daniel 12, he's called the prince of Israel. So he's Israel's prince. Very significant figure, Michael the archangel is. Uh, verse 12, And an host was given him, or an army was given him, against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. Remember we talked about that in our current events message? Transgression, rebellion, apostasy. 
and it, and it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. So this little horn was given an army against the daily sacrifice. What would that be today, the daily sacrifice? You're being able to worship God, praying. Now look at what's happened with these governors. California has now reissued an edict saying that you can't have church. I mean, I believe this stuff is, is, is at least happening in type right now. Um, so an army is against us right now. We talked about the forced mask wearing, the kneeling before the Marxist Black Lives Matter. Um, the truth is being cast down to the ground. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Um, all that matters is blind submission to the brotherhood of mankind, equality. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. Okay, so it does say that this army against God, against God's people, against the church, if you would, um, actually prospers for a time. Verse 13, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, he says, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host, or God's people, to be trodden underfoot? In other words, he says, How long is, is the temple... And the people of Israel, how long will they be trampled underfoot? Okay, now historically, here we're going we're gonna to see here, verse 14, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, 2,300 days. That's really, it's almost seven years. It's just shy of seven years. I know a lot of us think of the time of the seven years of the Antichrist that automatically comes into our mind. Um, historically speaking, though, which it's, it's very interesting that um, some have proven, supposedly, that Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the sanctuary or the temple of God for that exact amount of time, for 2,300 days. Now, a lot of people come up with a lot of fantastic prophetic theories about these 2,300 days as a day for a year and all those types of things. Um, I don't totally discount those. Theories, but a lot of them have been already proven wrong. People have made a lot of calc. They plugged these 2,300 days into some formula, and uh, they've been wrong, and the end didn't come at that time. But it doesn't mean that there isn't another deeper meaning to these things either. So it just means uh, that those people were wrong. But I, I look at them probably as literal, at least at some point, a literal 2,300 days in the future. Uh, maybe when the Antichrist appears, we'll, we'll see a lot of defilement going on. Um, all right. Continuing on. Oh, you know what? I actually have some information about the historical treading down of the sanctuary for 2,300 days. Um, the date when the temple was cleansed, uh, one commentator says, is well established as December 25th, 165 B.C. It's interesting. I mean, that's our... That's, our Christmas holiday today. They said that that's when the temple was cleansed. And then they said if, we, if they count back 2,300 days from December 25th, 165 B.C., you come to the year when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution in 171 B.C. So why I bring that up is it's interesting because it, if you just look at this number as a historical time that was fulfilled, I mean, God told, foretold it down to the exact day 
2,300 days. So when, how, what does that do for us? Well, when, when we see things happening in the world and things get confusing and uncertain, I mean, God's got everything down numbered to the day. He knows what's going to happen, so we don't really, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. God is on the throne. He's in control. He knows what's happening. Verse 15, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. So I've been, I've been telling you a little bit about the meaning of the vision already. Um, Daniel at this time has no idea what this means. Right now, all he knows is that there was this he-goat with all these horns and this ram with the two horns, and they were fighting, and the he-goat was victorious, and, and then the he-goat reaches up to heaven, grabs some stars, takes, you know, and all that. But since I knew ahead of time, because I read the whole chapter, I thought I'd fill in the details as we go, so I wouldn't have to go back and do that. But now Daniel's going to get the explanation. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Now, it's, it's interesting, you know, many times, you know, studying the Bible, we have, we have, there are still many topics I have a difficult time understanding. And, you know, I could be researching and researching nonstop. And then sometimes just stopping and, and just praying about it. Then all of a sudden, not too long afterwards, all of a sudden, boom, oh, a light bulb goes off in the mind. And it's like, wow, I see it now, okay? Um, but in this case, it would be nice if I, it would be, some of us would say, this would be nice if this could happen to us sometimes. God, I really don't understand this passage. Oh, Gabriel, Gabriel, thanks for coming, man. <laughs> um, but that's what Daniel, you know, he was privileged to have that, uh, this interaction here. Um, so, a voice yells out and tells Gabriel, probably God's voice, saying, Gabriel, go make this man understand this vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, or son of Adam, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, it's, it, you know, it's interesting, even at the appearance of, this isn't even God here, this is just an archangel named Gabriel. Gabriel's name is actually pretty cool. I like it. It means the mighty man of God. I like that because it's like his, his demeanor is like opposite of what the pastors are today. These are the wimpy, wimpy men of God, the effeminate men of God. And then you got Gabriel, the mighty man of God, you know, so... Um, Kids, I mean, young boys today should want to be like Gabriel, not like most of our pastors today. Um, so he was so powerful, so strong, so mighty that Daniel actually just fell on his face and was afraid. I mean, he's just shaking at the presence of this, this angel. 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. Uh, and not only that, he passed out. He went out, went out cold. He was so scared. Imagine that, uh, imagine, you know, experiencing something like that. But he touched me and set me upright. So here we got a little bit, it's kind of interesting, I didn't even think of this, you got a little bit of the, the strength of God's message and the grace. You know, sees the strength of it, that's first, and then, come on Daniel, you know, I'll help you up. Wake up from there. So he was gentle with him, he touched him, and he set him up on his feet. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. Indignation means the, the wrath of God, God's anger. For at the time appointed, 
The end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Remember I kept talking about that? Some might have been wondering, how does he know that the, those two horns are... That's how I know it. It wasn't uh, anything secret that I was able to tap into. <laughs> because uh, Gabriel told Daniel. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, or the king of Greece, the he-goat. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Well, the first king of the kingdom of Grecia was Alexander the Great. Now that being broken, Alexander the Great fell, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, out of Greece, but not in his power. Not in his power because he was dead. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when, now check this out, in the latter time of their kingdom. Now this is, I believe this is speaking to us today. When the transgressors, the lawbreakers, the lawless people, the evil people, the anti-Christians are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, I have no doubt this is talking about the Antichrist himself. A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences will stand up. And I believe that's what all the, this crap that we're seeing today leads to. Bow the knee to the Black Lives Matter Marxists, wear a mask, and submit. Because it's leading to the coming of this one here. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power... Uh, you know, the dragon gives power unto the beast in, the, in Revelation, gives power to the Antichrist. And he shall destroy wonderfully, or he'll, you know, he'll do it with ease almost, and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Historically, this was the, the nation of Israel and Palestine. Today, I believe it's the, the, the New Testament Israel in the land of America, in the land of America. Um, so this is, this is all part of this goat, okay? You know, it's interesting that in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7, the Israelites were warned not to make any more sacrifices to the goat demons or the goat images. And 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15 says the same thing. So this goat doesn't just... As a, as a biblical Christian back in the days, or a biblical-minded person back in these days, when you saw a goat, it would actually mean more than just a symbol of a nation. You'd be thinking this is a demonic nation, not just another nation. There's something demonic about it because people make idolatrous images to goats. Um, for instance, oh, I'll get to that in a second. thought it was the next slide. You'll see it in a second. Verse 25 and through his policy, his politics, okay, politics are in the Bible, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. We've got to have unity, brotherhood, you know, and all these types of things. Peace, 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 love. Uh, and by peace shall destroy many, and he shall stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand, okay? So he stands up against either Michael the archangel or Jesus Christ himself, and there's absolutely no competition. Just whack, you're done for. That's what's beautiful about that. But, um, okay, let's talk just for a second about um, the, well, 
the nature of a... Now look at this, this he-goat. I'm going to show you in a second that it's... It's a symbol of demons, it's a symbol of the Antichrist, it's a symbol of Satan. But why would the goat be used as a symbol of Satan? Well, the lamb is a symbol of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between a lamb and a he-goat. A lamb is gentle. It comes, you know, Jesus came to, in the first advent anyways, uh, Jesus came to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. He, he willingly... Uh, allowed his own blood to be spilled on the cross, but a he-goat doesn't sacrifice for anybody. It just takes, okay? It just wants power for itself. Um, the he-goat also in nature is known as wanting, um, uh, uh, is known as being uh, very stubborn, disobedient, whereas a sheep or a lamb would be an obedient little creature to the shepherd, but if, if, you, if you read up on people who try to train in goats, they want to do their own thing. They don't want to listen. They don't want to obey. So I believe that the goats are representative of Satan because of their rebellious nature. They do not want to obey God. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus describes people on his left hand and on his right hand. Those on the left go into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels, and those on the right enter into paradise. And he also further describes those on the left as being goats, while those on the right as sheep. Now the goats would be those that are disobedient. Now you look at the liberals. What are they? What are they? They are the goats. They don't want to obey God. They don't want to follow his uh, rules and his instructions and so forth. So a very befitting type of uh, the goat is a very befitting type of Satan and his people. Now Something for you just to tie into this thought. Maybe take some look at this deeper later. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 and 20. We'll probably talk about it more when we get to that chapter. But they talk about Michael and Gabriel, these two mighty angels of God, fighting, now check this out, fighting against the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia. So Michael and Gabriel are, are described later on in this book as fighting these two beasts. Now, why would they be fighting earthly beasts? It's weird. Well, because there are demonic powers behind these beasts. Um, and uh, there are, you know, there's a saying even by the pagans, as above, so below. You know, so it's like the things that happen on earth, there's actually in the heavens, there's battles going on. If there's a, if there's a war going on on earth, there's probably also a war going on up in the heavens with the angels. I don't, don't tell me, uh, don't expect me to tell you exactly how that works, but it, it seems to be there. Um, all right. Let me just show you a couple pictures. Look at this interesting figure. This is a pagan, half goat, half man, half woman, God. Okay. Um, this was the God of the, his name was what they named him was Baphomet or Baphomet. Um, it was the God of the Freemasons and so forth, but they got it from even a, a God from before that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But look at two horns. There's that, that uh, little horn probably that became great, the great horn. And uh, you have the phallus symbol there with serpents around it, represents the serpent seed. You see the goat legs and so forth. So I believe that this guy, this guy right here is the pagan representation of what we see in the book of Daniel. That's the demon behind probably the prince of Grecia, okay? Um, 
But anyways, fascinating when you look into the symbol, the, the wings supposedly represent uh, uh, the, the wings of Lucifer, the fallen archangel, Satan, and so forth. But a half man, half goat. Um, here's another half man, half goat. Uh, the, um, his name was uh, Pan, is what they called him. Um, and he was also worshipped among the ancients, okay? They worshipped these beings, half goat, half human, with the horn. And today, where do you think we get the, the devil horns from? Right? It's the goat, right? What do you got all those people in, in the hip-hop society today doing? Hey, what's up, dude? You know? It's, all, it's, it's because of this. This is where it's coming from, the, the he-goat and the rams. I just saw a picture of some of my relatives going like that in pictures. You know, some of us, I don't want to condemn any of you if you've done that, but, uh, <laughs> but now you know. <laughs> um, now you know where that comes from. All right, verse 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So even after it was explained to Daniel what some of these things meant, there were still a lot of things he didn't understand, and he was so disturbed by probably not understanding it that he, he fainted and was actually sick. He was actually sick. You know, like, I, I, can, uh, I, I can't relate to being sick from not understanding the Bible, but there are times it's just, it can be very frustrating trying to figure out some of the prophecies, and you, you just sit there and you're like, what does this mean? I can't figure it out, you know, and, and so forth. So, in other words, when we get like that, we shouldn't feel so bad. It's natural. It's not that we're stupid and God doesn't love us, because even Daniel, uh, at times, didn't even understand. I mean, this is a guy that's talking to an archangel comes to him, tells him the interpretation, yet he's still confused about a lot of it. So, so no big deal. All right. In conclusion, I always at the end of each study, I always at the end of each chapter, I always stop and say, you know, what does what's the main point? What did God want us to learn from this chapter? Uh, you know, what's the main lesson? Well, I, I believe. He wanted in here, uh, I believe what he wants us to glean from this is that this chapter gives us a prophetic type of the Antichrist. It tells us how he'll, he'll arise. Um, it also, another thing that it does for us, I get that, that guy riding that uh, motorcycle out there, so sorry if I'm interrupting my thought here. But anyways, uh, the, other thing that God know, uh, the other thing that we can glean from it is that God knows the future down to the very day, the minute, the probably even the second, okay? And what does that do for us? Well, look, just think about what we just read. We're reading about the rise and fall of the Persian and the Greece empire, two major historical world empires. And God foretold of them exactly how they would rise and how they would fall beforehand. So what does that tell us when we're reading the rest of the Bible? This stuff is true, it's not make-believe. Nobody could do that. I mean, just this chapter alone should make a believer out of anybody. Nobody could predict the future that closely, that in detail, hundreds of years before it happened. 
And that's just a fraction of what we find in the Bible. And um, the other thing that we can learn from this is all these world kingdoms, they rise and they fall. Okay, So we don't ever want, even when it comes to America, even though I believe America is Israel, so it's a little bit different, but we don't, our lasting happiness cannot be found in an earthly kingdom. You know, uh, President Trump, uh, though I love him, I think he's doing a great job, he's not going to bring us happiness. He's not going to just make America great and we're going to live in this great utopia. Okay, uh, World kingdoms rise and fall. Earthly kingdoms cannot give us that happiness. Only... What we're going to find out in the purpose of the book of Daniel shows us that these, all these world kingdoms rise and fall. You can't count on them, but you can count on the kingdom of God for giving you happiness. It won't fall. It lasts forever. And that's the kingdom that we want to be a part of ultimately. All right. Questions or comments? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think we should rename the Democrats the GOAT party. Yeah, yeah there we go. Instead of uh, Aren't they the donkey or right now they're the dumbasses, but yeah, the uh, the uh, goat would be more appropriate. <laughs> the goat party. Um, then I'm trying to figure this out or understand it, and it seems like Daniel and Revelation are kind of speaking on the same terms. Is it is it basically just two different versions of the same story, or is it is Daniel what happened back then? And Revelation is what's going to happen now, but they're very similar in how they happen. Or what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a good question because that's one of those things where I said, man, when I study the Bible, I, there's some things I can't quite figure out. Uh, that's, that's one of those things that, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out. But it, it does seem like they overlap each other. But it, it seems like a lot of Daniel did have some, a lot of those prophecies did have some sort of historical fulfillment. And then there are some little minor details that, that look like, no, there's no way that could have happened. Um, whereas the book of Revelation seems to be building off of those types for something, I think, yet future. And even the book of Revelation at times during the Christian, uh, at the beginning of Christianity, I think they probably, they probably would have read a lot of these verses, like let's say the beast or the Antichrist, and they, would, they probably looked at the next nearest thing to them, which would have been Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar, I believe his name actually added up to 666. So I, the, the easiest, the conclusion I've come to um, that, that sets my mind at ease is really when you're reading the Bible, even if there is a historical fulfillment or if you're just unsure, it can be applied to any and every generation. And I think God wrote it that way on purpose. So there was always, it would always be um, applicable. And it would all, you, you would always have this hunger for learning more. You know, God's pretty, uh, he's pretty smart when he knows how to draw people in. Because if you can just understand everything at once, this is in the human nature. Oh, I've already mastered that. Now it's time to move on. Now I'm going to find out what paganism has to say. Right. You know, but when, since the Bible, you can never completely understand everything about it. it it's never an, you know, there's always a meal to be had here. So I think that's why was, we want to just ha come to a conclusion, say, sign it and date it and stamp them done with that chapter. Right? right. I understand that now. That's what this means and that means. And, but I, the more and more throughout the years, you know, it's been like you know, 25 years since I've really been digging into the Bible. In my early years, I really would 
kind of stamp something as done. That's what it means, and I'd be really firm on it. Now I'm a little bit more open-minded when it comes to prophecy. I don't 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 say I'm being a liberal now. Just open-minded. When, when it comes to God's law, it's absolute. But prophecies, I think it, it's just there. I don't think you should be. If two Christians see things a little differently, um, I don't think they should be. Uh, you know fighting and bickering with each other over that. Um, I'm not saying you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean either. So it's, it's just kind of a balancing act there. I wish I, I wish I knew. I wish I could give you a better answer. <laughs> well, no, I, I think either way, I think it's definitely, like you said, it's, it seems to be that what was talked about back then or happened back then sure seems to also apply in more than one way in the Bible to today you know so i think it is kind of a cycling uh, prophecy in life yeah when you look at how jesus interpreted old testament prophecies or applied them i mean a lot of times he uh, jesus or the any of the apostles or even paul himself they would take a verse from the old testament and they applied it prophetically to what was going on in their time but that didn't mean that it was totally done then it wasn't this is the ultimate fulfillment like, I think Joel chapter 2 is one of them. When the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost Day, Peter stood up and said, This is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet, that um, the moon shall be turned into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come, and he would pour out his spirit, pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Um, I believe that that was only partially fulfilled on Pentecost because we're not at the great and terrible day of the Lord yet. And I believe it, I believe at the end. Um, God will pour out His Spirit in a fuller measure even than on Pentecost Day in the end. Um, so kind of duplicate. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could do a whole study on how, how the New Testament apostles interpreted prophecy and they, were, they weren't like really rigid about it, like this is it and it's no more. It was like a type. Types... It's like patterns and types. It, it's kind of fascinating, too, even when you look at nature. Um, you look at God's creation. Some, you, know, you look at the, the tree, like that oak tree out there. <clears throat> then you look at the leaf, and there's a pattern of the oak tree in the leaf, the stem of the leaf. It looks just like the oak tree, or very similar to it. I don't know if it matches the exact oak tree that's out there where the branches would have been or whatever. But... Um, and you keep looking, it's like pattern after pattern after. The deeper you look, you keep seeing these same patterns, but they repeat. Whether you're looking from... Uh, and and it's, it's also known that way even uh, by people when you study science and mathematics. When you look out at the heavens, a lot of the same numerology and math is the same as what's down here on earth as far as how nature works down here. You know, the cycles of the heavens and... So, and I think it's just God, just, just, he likes to make these pat patterns yeah, and repeat them. Yeah, and the you hear all the time is history repeats itself. Yeah, and the interesting part about nature, too, is patterns repeat themselves, but it's not, and I think this is like the Bible, but they don't always, they don't repeat exactly. They repeat, but they're slightly, there's slight differences every so often. And that's what actually keeps it interesting because if everything repeated exactly the same, it would become boring. But a repeat of something actually is like, I don't know, I think it's kind of a, a, a good teaching aid by God.
to make things, try to make things simple for you. Because you said, look back then, that's how it's going to happen again. But with a slight little difference. So you, rather than giving you a whole brand new concept every time something new comes up, it's, it's probably an effective way of illustrating and teaching um, types after types after types. So uh, maybe from God's perspective, that's why these prophecies are like that, to make it easy and replicable so we can absorb it. Makes sense. But maybe not give us the big head enough where we feel like we got it perfectly. It leaves us... You know, like there are, uh, there's a prophecy in the book of Revelation. You know, you have the uh, seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials um, described. And even those are, people debate on what those mean. But there's one other set of seven that nobody ever talks about. It's the seven trumpets, or the seven thunders. And John was told to seal up the things that they said and don't reveal that. So, you know, there's a reason God likes to hide things at times. And, uh, and, uh, likes the mystery. Yeah, he likes to keep things a mystery because mysteries, everybody loves mysteries. I mean, when you're watching a movie, if there's nothing mysterious about it or there's no, the, the writers of movies or TV shows or books, they're writing novels, the only, the one thing they, they know they have to do is they have to continually create conflicts and suspense. Otherwise, you're going to be bored. It's, it's dull and I'm done. And the Bible is written in probably that way more so than anything else. There's always this conflict and this mystery and how, how do we know? You know, you're always on edge wanting the next thing. Um, and uh, yeah, what, when you're watching a TV show or a movie, watch how they always, you know, you, you're expecting it to be something else and they always just keep doing the opposite. And then you're like, oh no, oh, why do they do it that way? <laughs> My wife sometimes uh, doesn't like when I do that because I get the idea of how they're writing these things because I do some writing myself. And, and so I'm like, oh, that's what's going to happen because they've got to keep it, you know, there's got to be a conflict here. It can't be that. But then sometimes they trick you because they don't want to be predictable. So you think they're going to do something else and then they actually, you know what I mean? So they, whatever. Any other questions or comments? Christian Overcomers is brought to you by the tithes and offerings of our listeners. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to ChristianOvercomers.com. God bless you, and thank you for your support. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible sword. His truth is marching on.